0: things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination
1: the only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories your greatest work may not be
2: seen by millions of people keep making anyway to be a writer we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished the only hope we have are the stories we tell stories not
3: bound by what is possible
2: we are proud to be storytellers.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Story Podcast. I'm here this week with Sammy. Who? You didn't travel lately. She's been home taking care taking of, of Pop Tart. Is it Pop Tart or Pup Tart?
2: Both. Mostly, we call her. <laughs> you Pop-tart. can't have
0: a dog with two names.
2: <laughs> she has a lot of names. I mean, when you're when you're that cute, you deserve a lot of nicknames. I think
0: okay (laughs) that's believable i guess okay that's awesome well i'm glad you're here this week Uh, we are excited to announce that we have added two more brad montague workshops we haven't even made this news public yet on the website this is only for podcast listeners um but if you go to the website and click refresh and if it's not there click refresh again tomorrow you can be first in line for tickets to workshops with brad montague in two really cool cities denver colorado Story has never done anything in Denver before, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, We've done some local gatherings, some free creative meetups in L.A. a couple times, but we've never done an actual workshop or conference there. And so I'm so excited to announce our first official paid L.A. event as well, Uh, another Wonder Workshop with Brad Montague in the heart of Los Angeles. And so more information will be sent out uh, via email to that. If you're not on our email list, make sure you go to storygatherings.com. Sign up for our email list and you'll be first in line to get tickets to one of those two cities. Um, There's information about the Wonder Workshop already on the website. So if you just want to learn more in the meantime, feel free to go check out the website. But this week we sat down with one of our speakers from Story 2016, Danielle Bennett. Um, and I think you might have missed the opener because you were backstage um, prepping to go on. I
2: saw it from just a monitor behind stage. Yes, sp- it behind was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. It was really beautiful.
0: Yeah, she's an incredible poet, but that piece was really difficult. Uh, so mm-hmm. for those of you who are a Story This Year, you remember our opening. There was this door on stage, a physical door, and there was a poet uh, on stage delivering a spoken word piece. Where she was basically arguing with herself on a video wall that was so there's like a video version of her standing on stage with her um and it was like the voice that was inside of her imagination uh and it was really fascinating but i was super impressed that she pulled it off it's not the same as standing on stage and just delivering spoken word into a microphone right there was all this timing so she yeah, was basically she is became pretty like incredible. a performing artist there for three minutes
2: absolutely so, yeah
0: amazingly talented i'm excited about this interview um kellen and i actually sat down with her while we were in la and recorded this and i'm excited let's just jump into it and roll it this is an interview with danielle bennett
1: We are talking to Danielle Bennett. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, you crushed it at Story thank and you. Franco. I should also credit Franco. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who missed Story, Danielle did an incredible spoken word performance as a part of our opener for Story, and you felt a little bit schizophrenic, apparently, right?
3: You did advise me to get counseling after <laughs> I showed you the draft of that piece. <laughs> I
1: did. So the full story, just so you guys know, I'll, I'll tell everyone the story. We were, uh, we were working on Story. And I called Danielle. Uh, actually we talked in person, I think, out on the West Coast at mm-hmm. another conference. And I was like, So, uh, how would you like to do something at a story? And you're like, Yeah, let me know. We'll talk about it. And then I told you the theme and you're like, Okay, I'll get to work. And then you wrote something and I was like, This is pretty good. We should like open the whole conference with this and then it turned into like this filmmaking project and a bunch of like cool things with the LED wall. And can you give us a brief synopsis of what of you did? Try to describe it.
3: Yeah. So the piece opened with a video of me walking in front of this kind of ambiguous door, obviously on the way to work, multiple times. Franco added in some sound effects where I talked where it sounded like I was waking up, there was toast and alarm, et cetera, et cetera. And after a couple of times walking by this door, hopefully it builds some sort of curiosity. And then we will call her on screen Danielle. On screen Danielle, or personality one, uh, starts a dialogue with Seemingly the audience. But then on stage, Danielle walked out. So me, live, performing this piece, walked out. And we essentially had a conversation um, that ended through just one of us walking through that door. Uh, (laughs) Ha-ha. And the essence of the conversation was about adventure and risk-taking and um, on-screen, Danielle obviously being, being driven by fear and trying to belittle the dreams and the possibilities that stage Danielle imagined. Yeah, <clears throat>
1: it was amazing. So let's dig into what led you up to the ability to be able to do this kind of stuff. Let's go back to the beginning of your story. Uh, when did you realize that you were a poet?
3: I think something that I'm learning particularly in this this very particular season that I'm in, like this month and the past couple months, um, that all of these things and complexities um, have been in me since I was a little so I have always had a little business in me which is my family I inherit that from my family definitely I have a very corporate family um, but I've also been the a little bit like crafty emotional one in my family as well um, I was the youngest of five kids and had a tough time getting a word in we were a very loud boisterous family um, and I was always drawn to performance when I was little yeah sure but that kind of got squashed when I started thinking about like what's actually realistic for my life um so I was just this closet writer who didn't think I was very good like I did well in English class but I wouldn't say any of I'd submitted like two poems for lit mag and I think one of them got accepted like I wasn't necessarily very good when I was in high school either so the idea of doing poetry didn't really dawn on me um even though I knew I loved writing I'd been speaking since I was in middle school in front of um, a lot of crowds and then one day my first year that I moved to LA which was 10 years ago. I saw a spoken word piece uh, performed at a conference, and I knew right away. I was like, "There I am, there mm. that is, that's it." How old were you? Mm, I was eighteen. And what for first 17? brought you to LA for school? Okay, I'm from DC, and I came out of here for school. I just wanted—I went to the largest high school in the state of Virginia, and I wanted a change. So it's a big change. It's a huge change. <laughs>
1: yeah. What it's was it change. about that piece that made that hit you? Where you were like, "Oh, that's what I'm supposed to do."
3: Um. I think there was an emotional honesty to it. It was a strong performance. Um, I don't know. That's a great question. I just think that I knew that that mixed um, my desire to perform, but not act. And I think that's the difference for me. Is I get a lot of feedback um, or questions from people who think I'm monologuing when I'm doing pieces, which is sure, which is like great. It's a compliment that they think that there's. Um, a strong enough performance that I might be like coming from some sort of trained acting, Mm -hmm. but I consistently reply with the fact that I am not acting. I'm just vulnerably connecting to what I wrote on stage in Mm -hmm. front of a lot of people, which is a hard thing to do, particularly when you don't want to feel connected to what you wrote, um, in that moment. Yeah. Um,
1: What is it? What is it that causes a poem to resonate with someone?
3: I think it's honesty. And vulnerability, and I think there's a difference, and it's the same thing, I think it's for talks, I think it's for poems, I think it's for anything that's sh- shared aloud, is there's a difference between something that is like um, catchy and feels good for a little bit, um, and it's like, wow, that was a- such a great line, but you forget about it a week later, versus mm-hmm. something that resonates with you for a long time, and I think the things that stick with people for a long time are the truly vulnerable, honest things. Um, and that's a big distinguisher for me in terms of what makes good poetry, and... I think writing is really important to me, but I also feel like I—I I feel like um, sensing that the poet is being honest through and through as best as they can at that point in their life is really important to me. And I don't think you need to, not all good poets are great writers and they're super honest people. It's just my preference.
1: I guess you could say there are a lot of great writers too that aren't great at performing their poetry.
3: Yeah, totally. Although I do believe all poetry is meant to be read aloud. I think that when you hear a poem that you feel like you don't understand on paper, when you hear it, there's something different about the life um, in that piece that gets a chance.
1: Hmm. What do you, are you, are you willing to speak about the rise of the popular YouTube poets who yeah. have huge followings just because their words rhyme?
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. I think this all goes back to accessibility. So people get excited about YouTube poets because they're accessible and because they're sharing things that they can easily understand and might believe in um and i think it's great you know i think it all it all belongs right so with like all waters rise right so you hear you see less talented writing in my opinion and i'm not necessarily (laughs) the end-all be-all expert it's just my opinion you see less talented writers doing really really well on youtube sometimes but it also raises the platform and the interest level for people who are really good writers and who are also using the exact same channels so you can't bash it um it just comes with the media yeah well when you talk about
2: um poems being vulnerable and how that resonates with people what is your writing process like is it something that you are just inspired by a life event or something that happened you're like I have to write this down or do you have some type of um
1: pain tragedy no. it's all like it's
2: discipline like like or like discipline, <laughs> practice that you're like um I need to you know I'm gonna sit down at this time and I'm just gonna try to write like do you yeah what's your I, process I think it's both. both
3: yeah um I think that it's f- in my best, I have a great discipline about it, and I write every day just so I don't get rusty. Yeah, I like looked, I was writing every single day um, for two months earlier this year, and I looked back at those pieces, and I didn't like any of them. Wow. But they kept me from being rusty when I sat down to write a project piece or something that I did when I write about. Um, and they let me have fun and play a little bit, particularly if I'm writing something that I'm commissioned to write versus mm-hmm. something that I'm writing out of a, a personal space. I mean, all my work is personal, even if I'm commissioned for it. Right. I, I Just how I write, but... Um, it's a slightly different approach. And then in terms of inspiration, so when I'm not feeling disciplined, there's like all these great books that I read about, um, the creative habit, which is a Twyla Tharp book, which I would like greatly recommend. to She's any great. Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious. That book changed the way I approach creativity,
1: which is interesting because she's a dancer, right? A choreographer. Oh yeah, yeah. But her, so you might think what does choreography have to do with poetry?
3: Oh, it's so good. Her, dis- her disciplines and her approach to just making it a lifestyle and, uh, making it a life, are, are really interesting and really mm-hmm. helpful. Um, but I think the best thing that I do for when I really want to be inspired is I live, and I pay attention to my life, and I pay attention to the way I feel, and I pay attention to what I'm thinking, which requires a little bit of like meta discomfort sometimes. Yeah. But it's important, I think, if you want to bring – if I, I mean, for me, I think the role of a poet is to bring insight. And if I'm just saying what other people are saying, then all I'm doing is adding noise. Um, and I'm mm. giving it cadence and um, essentially remixing wisdom from other people, which isn't always a bad thing. It's not, And it's not. Right. Um, but it's just not my preference in terms of my style. I want to help myself with my own insights first because that's the only way I can test whether or not they might be helpful for someone else later on. But that living piece is – and deci- deciding to pay attention to your life is not that easy. Yeah. Especially if you don't like what's happening in your life. So, and I mean, quite honestly, that's where some of the discord in that opening piece of the story came from. Like, that piece wasn't just a concept, that piece was a conversation I was having in my head every day. And I decided to share it um, because I was hoping it would give me a little bit of clarity too. So,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm noticing more and more that the greatest, the stories that resonate with people the most are the stories being told by a storyteller who also happens to be living out that story or who has lived out that story. Um, yeah. Which is interesting. because <laughs> Which sometimes sucks with artists,
3: <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. You you, were, uh, you mentioned something in there. You were talking about the, the Twilight Art book, um, about making it your life. Talk to us a little about that because I know you're kind of going through this, not just currently going through, but you've been through multiple transitions over the past couple of years, it seems, yeah. trying to figure out what do you make of this Life as a poet. So yeah. take us back to the first transition. You, you've got a job, the security of a salary. Yeah. You f- feel like your dream is I'm supposed to do poetry full time. Yeah. And so you uh, you walk through the door, right? We wrote a piece about that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is the, the opening piece like unraveled into multiple <laughs> multiple sections. And this is what I was saying. This is what I was alluding to when I mentioned that I feel like all these complexities have <laughs> existed in me since I was little. But I didn't have space where both of those things could be could exist at the same time, so I always felt like I had to choose. Um, and when I say both of these things, I'm talking about someone who can succeed in a little bit more of a corporate setting and someone who could succeed in an artist life and a mm-hmm. freelance life. Um, so out of college, I had t- two other job offers that were a little bit more office life-ish, um, but got recruited to Teach for America. And... Um, which I was pretty excited about and ended up teaching 12th grade government economics and AP government in Inglewood. Wow! So I taught there for three years. It was great. Changed my life. I loved it. I was never, I didn't intend to be a career teacher. That was never my career aspiration. Um, and I'd already been doing poetry. So I started doing poetry in college and then after college started teaching, was still doing poetry because for me it was my venting. It was my free therapy and I had developed a really great community of friends at the Poetry Lounge who were my poetry family and were with me through a lot of things. So I taught for three years and then knew that I didn't want to do that um, forever and was in the middle of applying to a lot of different things and really thinking that I wanted to go back into communications, which is where I had spent some of my internships in um, college and potentially political communications. And so I was leaning that way and searching and putting out feelers when my grandfather got sick. And my grandfather and I are super close, so... Um, in the middle of my spring of my last year teaching, I would drive to the Palisades from Inglewood, um, and to Santa Monica where he was in the hospital every day and start helping run operations for his company. And so I ended up just moving into that with him for a little bit, um, and spent a year running my grandfather's company. Um, and then in the middle of that, I picked up some great skills. There's a lot of, uh, quick learning that happens when you run a company that is highly technical and you know nothing about the industry, nor have you ever run a company. I'd run some (laughs) classrooms. (laughs) I'd run plenty of classrooms. Not entirely the same. The people management stuff was easy for me. Like that, that felt, um, a little easier, but, um, the technicality of it wasn't necessarily like in my wheelhouse yet. So anyways, I missed social good. I missed education reform. I missed Uh, working on behalf of kids and feeling like the thing that I was doing every day made a really tangible difference. Mm -hmm. And that word tangible was really important to me in this opening piece, that story too. I talk about um, the tangibility of work and how sometimes art can feel like, or writing a poem or sharing a poem can feel like, oh, it's so nice that you made people feel good or think for three minutes. But what good does that do in the day-to-day? So ended up coming back to... Green Dot, which is the nonprofit that I um, currently work for, they run um, 21 middle and high schools in Los Angeles, four in Memphis, and one in Tacoma, all in um, higher needs communities. Um, and that was Green Dot was the network of schools that I was a teacher under as well. So I got a job in their strategy department and was there one year when... Um, that year, that was 2015. I booked more poetry gigs than I have ever booked before, and I was getting paid left and right to do poetry. And I spent zero efforts; like, all I d- I, d- I put no time or effort into it. I didn't have an- a manager. I didn't have a website. I barely advertised. or had any pictures on Instagram or social media that I did poetry. It was all through word of mouth. And I got flown to New Zealand wow. to perform at a camp and to teach at a camp. For 10 days and got paid like great money to do that. I was like, I, I'm not even trying. And so after a couple of conversations, um, one of them with our friend Jason, um, I felt like and another one with our friend David, um, I felt like I would regret it if I didn't put some more elbow grease into my freelance life and to trying to become a spoken word artist and to teach, because I love teaching workshops. That's probably my sweetest spot. Um, And launching some sort of speaking as well, which was a really terrifying thing, being a girl from right outside of D.C. when your whole family worked for government contractors um, in some way or another. And all your friends' parents did that too. And I had some certain beliefs about what my life should look like. So I wasn't certain that life as a poet was like going to help me attain those things. And I also felt like I'd built up all these skills and like I was good at all this other stuff, so why pursue art and why pursue poetry? Why not just let this be my passion? And I don't want to make this like gift work for me because then I'm going to hate it and resent it and I don't want to have this weird relationship and what if this messes up my resume and the next thing you know people are like why'd you do that part-time and then I can't get a job back in this sphere that I want and then I'm starting over again and then I'm just really screwed myself by making this decision alas I uh, went to my manager who is amazing and she and my CEO um, offered me a part-time position to stay at Green Dot which is am- I don't I that decision was so important to me it was such a gift so I agreed to stay on part time, um, and I love I love the work that I do at Green Dot. But I spent the past year I spent 2016 uh, traveling around the country performing and speaking and getting to teach, and the other half of 2015 at Green Dot doing work that I really care about and working on behalf of kids um, <coughs> who are victims of an of institutionalized racism in the education system. So 2016 has been a magical year, and. David is the one who told me I would regret it if I didn't try, um, to put some more elbow grease into being a freelancer and he's absolutely right. I would have completely regretted it because I put more time and more effort into my work and into believing in myself, um, than I ever would have known that I had in there. And I thought I was a tough cookie. Um, but this year tested that, I think big time. And I think it, brought out a level of courage in me that, um, was, it's, it's hard when coworkers you like deeply respect ask you why you're not in the office every day. And you're like, I'm trying to be a poet. And quite honestly, I just have the stigma against a lot of artists in Los Angeles because I've been here for 10 years Mm -hmm. who are quote unquote trying to make it. And I know that's judgmental and, um, probably not fair given the guts it takes to be an artist, but it's honest. So I held that same stigma against myself and um, it, it was an act of courage for me all the time to admit what I did because I wasn't, I hate that I'm I hate that i going to say this, but I wasn't proud of being a poet necessarily in the same way that I'd be proud of, I don't know, some office job. Why? I don't know. It's probably some of my core values system were things that I ended up believing when I was younger that I've never shaken even though I have some of the most talented freelance artist friends in the world, like they are crushing it. Like great actors who are doing really well. I have great filmmaking friends who are doing super well. I have a lot of friends who like have production companies, they're writers, they're do- like I have all the evidence to believe that I could do it. I just have it in my head that it, um, I couldn't um, or that it wasn't feasible and the odds were low. So it was a huge act of courage for me, and I think that was one of the things that drove me into making the, the decision to actually do freelance work was um, I didn't want to live from a place of fear, and I I don't care how old I am. I don't want to look back at my life and pick out years where I completely held myself back because I was too afraid mm-hmm. when I have the best community in the world who are willing to be there for me every step of the way. So I don't I don't have a lot of reasons to be afraid. Um and I think my faith deeply supports me in that as well. But the thing I learned in the process is that it doesn't have to be either or. Like I don't have to swim in the deep end of poetry and trying to make it to honor the gift and to honor the work that I put into it. Um, I can do both. I can have both. And this has taken me so long to understand that I can be a poet who is amazing and has a great, great job in an office environment. It is not a sellout. It's beautiful that I love both. Because that's the thing that I learned this year. It's like I would come back from a gig over the weekends and go into the office and I would love my office life. And I know all these people who are like, oh I hate I hate the stuff that I do at work every day and blah, blah, blah. Like, but I have to go do it here. just to get yeah. a paycheck. Yeah, I have yeah. to get a paycheck. Like, I don't feel that way at all. I have the best coworkers in the world and I work for something that is like, incredibly important and I deeply believe in. And if you get me started talking about like, institutionalized <laughs> racism, particularly in the education system, I will go bananas. I love talking about it. And that's what I get to do all the time. And I feel like this year it took me doing both to realize how great both are and how much they both belong. But it came to a point where I, and I've told you guys this earlier, I, um, I didn't love writing, and I didn't want to look at poems. I didn't want to read poems. I didn't want to get better at my craft, and so I dropped the disciplines we talked about earlier, and I I just like, completely lost excitement over the next thing, which is why Harris, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but so Harris and I were at a conference together um, in Minnesota, and I did this piece called Lighthouse, and there is a line in the end of Lighthouse because Lighthouse is essentially talking about a a really similar topic. The first half of it is about me being tired, and the second half of it is is finding some redemption in being tired. But one of the lines in the second half of the poem is, um, and I've never watched, but I can tell I am beautiful when I'm writing. And that line gets me so much, because I felt so out of touch with that for the past, like, six months. And... Some people can make a living out of their art, and that is awesome, and I think it's great. Actually, most of my best friends do that, but... I finally am okay with the fact that I don't have to do that. And I'm going to keep performing. I'm going to keep speaking. I'm going to keep teaching workshops. Like next year I will keep doing that. But I won't force myself to say yes to things just because it's part of my gigs or I need to fill up my calendar or I need mm-hmm. to look a certain way on social media to pick up more gigs or I need to make sure I connect with more people at more conferences. Like I just want to do things that I care about and I just want to be able to say no to things. And I'm like, I don't need that paycheck and I don't really want to do that event um, and be okay with it. And I want to feel more freedom in approaching my art again. And not to mention the moment that I made that decision. A, I loved writing again. And I've written since I made the decision a couple weeks ago. And B, I have potential new opportunities opening up at my nonprofit that are like exactly the kind of comms work that I wanted to do five years ago. Um, so everything is kind of coming into alignment. But it's been, it's a kind of embarrassing to go back and forth between things, if I'm honest. Like, this is not the life that I imagined for myself.
1: Where do you think that pressure comes from, that pressure to go, oh, if you're really good at this and this is your gifting and people are asking you to do it, it seems like the, the culture around us celebrates those who take the leap and going, I'm going to make a full time gig out of it. Mm-hmm. It seems like those are celebrated the most. Where, do you, what is, where does that pressure come from, you think? At least where did yours come from? Did you feel this pressure to be like, oh, if you're going to be a poet, you got to like step out and be a full-time poet?
3: To be honest, I never felt the pressure. I felt encouragement. Hmm. I feel like I've had really balanced encouragement both ways. Um, so I didn't feel pressured to do it. Maybe I pressured myself, and that was my own thing because I just wanted to feel legit to me. Um, but now I feel I've accomplished that. Like I feel legit in my art. I feel proud of my work. I feel proud of the things I've done this year, and I feel proud of the things I'm going to do next year. Um
1: but Do you feel like we glamorize it? <clears throat> like do we glamorize the idea of like Oh the full time
3: <laughs> Well we love the, the story artist. right? If this, <laughs> We love the story We love this, the story of the person who took a jump And didn't fall um, I'm not sure we're quite as uh, We find the, the story Quite as palatable When you take the jump and then you land at a platform And then you take another jump and you land at a platform We just like people who jump off the cliff And they're like flying already Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's, it involves courage. It belongs, it it entails belief in your work and confidence. And I think those things should be glorified because they are hard to do. And it is hard to believe in yourself. So when someone does, like by all means, they deserve every ounce of the praise and the applause for it. I just don't think it makes me any less brave. And I think that's the thing I'm learning. I'm not less courageous for wanting both of these things in my life. not it's still a beautiful life to have and not an ounce of me feels like I'm quitting anymore I actually just feel like for the first time in my life I am letting myself be all of me at the same time and that's okay and if other people don't understand what my dual lives look like that's not my problem or responsibility to explain it to them
1: yeah do you feel like some of those disciplines are coming back now
3: they will they will. It's been a. It's a pretty fresh decision. So um, this, I have two weeks off right around Christmas, and I plan to be writing. And I think there's something about there's something about having like less time to do the work when I'm back in an office Monday through Friday. There's less time to do writing where you kind of have to force yourself to like. I already get up before work pretty early anyways, but I'll have to get up a little bit earlier to squeeze in some writing as well. And it's actually some of the best writing that I do is when I force myself to get up and do it in the morning. And if I didn't have that like going to the office at deadline, I'm not sure I'd have the same sort of fire. And again, that's not the same for everyone. Everyone can approach this differently, but for me, um, I used to think that when I was making the decision to, to go freelance in, at the end of 2015, I was like, I'm too tired. I'm too tired to do both of these things. But then I went part-time and I'm still tired. So I think that's just part of my own <laughs> issues with the way I manage work and, and yeah. life. It's not the job's fault. It is yeah. my fault. Yeah. So if I'm going to be tired, I might as well be doing two things that I love mm-hmm. in whatever capacity that I'd like to do them.
1: Yeah. Tell us more about Poetry Lounge.
3: Oh, the lounge? And what role it's played?
1: Yeah, sure. Anything. I don't know anything about it.
3: Oh, well, Micah brought it up in his his interview with you, I believe. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's
1: the thing you went to where he, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. All right.
3: Mm-hmm. So the Poetry Lounge is... So it's a big deal. Yeah. It's one of the largest venues in the <clears throat> in the country. And it's been one of the longest standing venues in the country. Um, And really well respected. Started by a bunch of people who were on Deaf Poetry Jam and has produced some of the top poets across the country consistently all the time. Cool. Um, Really great. So I went there um, maybe my sophomore year of college and loved it and stayed quiet. Like I was not the kind of person who was going to come out the bat thinking that I had some sort of good poem when I was watching all these great poems go up there. So I would just write and write and write. And I'd come back and I'd watch and I'd write and I'd go on YouTube and I'd read and I'd write. Um, And none of the stuff I was writing was very good. Bless anybody who gave me encouragement along the way. I'm glad I kept going. But eventually one, one day in college, it was, um, there was a female host and there's typically male hosts. She normally hosts the second half or she used to host the second half of the lounge and she was hosting the first half. And she was like, you know what? This list is entirely filled with men. I'm gonna skip down to the next woman because the, uh, there's a cutoff. If you don't get there super early, you can't uh, perform. You have to be like in the first 15 to 20-ish people. Um, and so she went all the way down to the list and I was definitely past the cutoff and she pulled me up cause I was the first, I was the next girl. So it was the first time I performed at the lounge and I did this piece. This is also embarrassing about having crushes, like really insane <laughs> crushes. I've never written anything like it since, but it got can you, enough. Can you do it for us? I don't remember it. I can't even find it. I tried to find oh it the God. other day. It was A long time ago. I tried to find it because it was kind of funny. It's not good writing, but it was funny. Um, so I did this piece and then had two people who were, who were regulars at the lounge come up and talk to me. And they're like, you should perform more. And I was like, I'll try if I can. <laughs> so I went back, wrote, 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 and just started coming back and back and back until I was uh, eventually involved with one of the best poetry families you could ask for um, to this day. I don't go to the lounge as much as I'd like to anymore, but this week I had two text messages from my friends there because they're just good caliber people on top of being some of the best writers I have ever heard.
1: Yeah, we've talked earlier about the role they played in you know, not just supporting you, but like you they would give you feedback on your writing and you guys would send each other your stuff, right? Maybe talk about the role of surrounding yourself with other artists that work in your same vein of work that you can open yourself up to critique.
3: Yeah. Yeah, this is a, this is something I don't think enough artists do because it's terrifying to get your baby scratched up with red pen, but, um, one of the reasons I love my Poetry Lounge fam is they were not shy about letting me know when writing needs to get better, and they're really good writers, and so when I first started at the lounge, I started really connecting to people through a workshop where your stuff would get critiqued, and then I started writing with two other women there, and we'd listen to each other's stuff, give feedback, and then I developed a friendship with my friend Nick, um... And we would send each other our poems before anyone else saw them. So Nick got the first draft of all my pieces and he would tear them up and I would tear his up until we got better and better and better. And you built a thicker skin to editing too. And then at some point you realize your pieces aren't that good until you get some good solid feedback on them. I mean, and sometimes you you push out a good piece without someone else's feedback and it's great. Um, but it became a really valuable process and it really helped me um, – learn how to value the craft of writing because that is the thing I think gets diluted the most in the spoken word world is that uh, we applaud performance and we don't listen to the writing so people can say things that are like I could read like a Donald Miller book out loud in a cadence and you guys would be like
1: dang she's good <laughs>
3: but all I'm doing is remixing someone else's wisdom and I'm adding cadence <coughs> and doesn't make it good writing So that is part of what the lounge has done for me.
1: Yeah. So you would would say advice to other creators, surround yourself with people, open yourself up to feedback and criticism.
3: Absolutely. Don't be afraid of someone you trust tearing your stuff up. It's good for you. It's good for Mm -hmm. us. It makes better artwork. Especially, especially A, if it's someone who's familiar with your work and they can tell you when you're using the exact same thing and pulling the same tricks all the time, which I've been called out on. Um, (laughs) Or when they know you're not being honest,
1: hmm. I'm I'm really dying to ask you to do a piece. Oh, I'm putting you on the spot. We didn't tell her before the before we were going to start recording that we were going to record something, but come on, do, so, do something for us. Um, you pick. You you told me a line from a piece earlier. Yeah, Maybe we can just do thing. that one. I'm yeah, just trying to make sure that
3: I don't mess that one up. So this is Lighthouse. It's um, from a piece that I did with my friend Alex G, who's a really talented singer-songwriter. November ran me down, left me staring at the backside of a pig herd. I woke up with mud thick as thighs, smeared across eyelids and lip corners, and all over my spirit. So tired, the voice I am losing is both a red and white flag that tells a more honest story than my mouth does. Tired of all the discipline it takes to say no. Tired of the daily quit and the daily ask, each message a jagged skip in whatever groove I had finally slid into. Tired of feeling like a thread, always pulling through. Of showing up to a keyboard, unimpressed by anything I have to offer it. I understand, I too am unimpressed by my own biography. Tired of wanting to claw my way through skin until I'm an indistinct skeleton slinking out unnoticed. Perhaps then I wouldn't be held to the fire of my own splintered dream boards. Shrink me tiny enough to escape failure by any one of my hundred definitions. Help me believe that this art was only ever an experiment. I'm tired of doing my best, of telling sugar to let me go, of being looked at like the next shiny trophy, tired of feeling like a ladder rung, like an empty promised land, tired of what it takes to get clear, of how heavy the heart weighs in, of the not quite almost just weight here, of the questioning of my own aloneness, of my own enoughness, of my own too muchness. November reminds me I am a six-figure grave and whoever taught me what that would mean. Where is the triangle of blame that promised me relief one day? Where is the relief in any of this one day? The truth is, I'm only bothered when I think or I know I have completely lost control. My reputation, the feels, the knowing, Even in my dreams, I have chased and begged them home, but I never learned to lasso, so I am doing my best for the thousandth time to actually let it go. And anyone who's ever nailed crow pose or finally hit five miles knows that repetition expecting a different result isn't always insanity. Sometimes it's just the way of growth. I am flaking mud really i am left in no one's dust i am miles behind and i am still winning i will never forget my own name i am letting us all off my hooks i am showing up even when other people don't i am unlearning how to be tough and my fine curled kinks rarely dry pretty but how refreshing to love myself however i become and I am not forcing resolve anymore because I'm not sure the way that, that's the way life folds, but I am reconciling every version of myself because I want them to meet one day and have a good laugh at how right they swore they were. And I'm not made of formulas, so I can no longer respond on your cue. I'm asking questions that may make me seem a little slow, but I've decided that is a good four-letter word, and I've figured out that two pieces of dark chocolate a day is not adding more inches to my waist than the nearly three decades of stress I have asked this body to stomach. The manna has come enough times to know that I will not be buried alive, and I've never watched, but I can tell I am beautiful when I'm writing, and there is a humble man saving the rest of his 4th of Julys for my firework giddy applause. And I don't know where he is, but I know he doesn't play hide and seek. And I know i want to tell him I haven't been waiting. I've been creating a hotel of stories he can thank for the shameless, crooked smile I've become. I am flaking mud. I am waking up. Praise this whole year is almost gone and I think the next year is a new sun and I have never loved the sound of crumble as I do now under all that earth I got soft somehow I got a second draft biography it says I'm not much of a sailor but I've built some sort of boat if you judge me by my crew that I am thoroughly good if you judge me by accomplishment that I am a two time world champion in facing what I fear the most. I have been published by several renowned atlases for my work repairing lighthouses using only sound. You'll know their mind when you see them the light looping haphazardly, like they're completely out of control.
2: I'm afraid to talk after that. <laughs> <clears throat> it was so
1: good. This is what happens when we have poets on the podcast. I I end up asking them to do a piece, and then when they're finished, we feel like that should just be the end of the podcast <laughs> because it's just so hard to come back uh, after something so beautiful. Um, walk us through the process. How do you write? How do you write something like that?
3: I think a lot of it goes back to what I was saying earlier about living and noticing what you're living and so uh, oftentimes if I'm sitting down to do a free write which is what this started as which is just a kind of a bit of a brain dump I do a general self check-in and not all I've done plenty of self check-ins and free writes where like those pieces should not make it into anyone else's inboxes or ears Um, but there are some times when I'll check in with myself and I'll start writing and I'll know that I'm striking something that means a lot and I think this piece was the culmination of a lot of buildup of what it looks like when all I do is project art and commissioned art and not art for myself, because these are all, it's a long poem, which I don't, I think it's harder to write short. And so I, one of the challenges I went through this year was like learning how to write shorter pieces and writing them well. But I think one of the reasons it's so long is I had been building that up inside of me. So many lies clearly that I'm believing about myself and about my work and about my art. Um, that I had just kind of let sit dormant as opposed to actually letting my art do what it does for me, which is to get it out in front of me. And I like to think of poems and our stories as like a, they're like little inhabitants walking about your hallways. Like, like imagine your soul and your body is like full of holes. Or maybe it's like a high school and they're like knocking on lockers and stuff. And they're all using your lockers without your permission. And I think sometimes our stories can start to own us and define the way we think and act until we give them a space outside of ourselves. To live for a little bit. like They're just going to make a home if we don't give them another home to live. And sometimes when I look at those stories on a page, they're not quite as scary. And they're not, they don't have as much influence as they did when they were just living inside of me. And that's what that that's what that piece was for me. Um, it's a bunch of things. That I had le- live rent-free in my spirit. And the moment I got them out, I was like, ah. I see that for the ugly thing that it is. And, the, you know, the ugly things belong. They tell a story. They... They show me where I'm at emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Um, but I would prefer that they didn't get to uh, own my thinking patterns right. or drive my actions.
1: Yeah. I have to ask you, just because earlier you said, don't get me started on racism. Uh-huh. Uh, otherwise, I'll go off. But <clears throat> I feel like I have to at least give you that opportunity. So give us the short About institutionalized uh, racism? Yeah.
3: In the American education system?
1: Uh, not necessarily just in the American education system. I mean, we talk to a community of creatives and the role that they have the potential to play in fighting against that institutional racism.
3: Yeah. I'm, I, I think one of the things, my favorite things about the work that I do is that I get to look at it from a, really, from a systems perspective. Like, I work in a system that is actively fighting against institutionalized racism. And we butt heads with policies that are inherently racist all the time, like what? Um, okay, so um, I'm hesitant. Whatever, I'll just I'll name it. So there's the school district that authorizes most LUSD. It's the largest, one of the, the <laughs> second largest school district. I will just be honest. In um, in America, they have this really ancient policy on wanding. Where every school that is authorized by LAUSD, including public charter schools that are authorized by them, as well as traditional district schools, both public, um, must randomly wand students at every single one of its campuses. Okay, it's equitable if every single campus does it, but why do you think that policy was enacted? For what kinds of schools? And once you get a picture of what that is in your head, of what kinds of schools that it was supposed to be enacted for, you can imagine what what implementation ratios are like.
1: Just to be clear, by wand, do you mean like oh, little t- a little metal, metal detector, detector thing? Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. So you're either walking through a metal detector or you're getting, it's supposed to, sure. be, it's supposed to be a random wanding. So every day, you're supposed to randomly wand students. Because
1: I go, to, I just immediately go to either Harry Potter
3: or magic Yeah, Yeah, So yeah. You would. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> you wanted old clar- magician. just wanted to clarify. Wanding. And I'm not saying that people who wrote this, and this is the biggest issue with, so let me flesh out a little bit more of, of the racism that's inherent in the policy, is that... Um, It ends up helping people express their unrecognized biases by not randomly wanding. They use wanding as an excuse to wand students who they think look suspicious, which is not the intent of the policy. Um, And then it doesn't get to happen in every single one of the LAUSD schools. And so you think about them implementing or forcing a charter network that runs all low-income schools to implement it. And what, what message do we send to our kids if we've spent years... Developing these restorative justice practices and these other like alternative discipline methods to help students know that they have allies and they're not looked at as suspicious, but it builds a stigma. And I'm not saying that um, I'm not saying that people who are enforcing it are racist by any means. I think there are unchecked and unrecognized biases that you build up over the course of your life, which happens based on the neighborhood you grow up in, what your parents say, the way you interpret the news, like micro interactions, and the way you start swallowing and building up certain beliefs in your head. But unless you take honest time to debunk that and watch how they could creep into policies you create, um, it becomes institutionalized, and it all starts with people. And again, and the, I think the issue is that they're not. Sometimes they're not overt racist like uh, attempts or policies. It just becomes that way because of implementation.
1: Sure. Uh, to me, just listening to you talk reminds me it has everything to do with stories yeah. and storytelling because we're we're. We're establishing a certain narrative. Kids are being told a certain story. If they start believing that story, they oh, start yeah. owning it, it changes their actions, the choices they make. And,
3: yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
1: So what do we do about it?
3: I, I think it's an everything issue. I think there's – and there's so many ways to combat institutionalized racism, and I think the first part starts with having honest conversations with yourself about what you believe and just letting yourself honestly – confess to someone that is close to you like these are the racist things and jokes that I laugh about and um, these are the racist comments that I let slide and don't stand up for and these are the things I do and I've gotten pushback. I almost got into a fight at a bar over a guy who made a comment about, I think he said, I hate the term acting white and so I actively say something about it almost every time I hear anyone say something that like someone is acting white Um, because of course the phrase means you're implying that white is X, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is completely dishonorable to anyone who is not white. So I think it's those kind of small things. A, it's admitting those things to yourself. It's B, willing, being willing to stand up even in tiny conversations at a bar where it's not... My sister told me. She was like, Danielle, this is not the place. <laughs> I almost slapped this person <laughs> Um, who I'm not friends with, so it's fine. And then I think there's... Everybody who has that honest conversation with themselves will have no other option but to have that be expressed in whatever field of work that they're in. So your storytellers, when they're more honest with themselves about what they believe, will start telling different stories and start empowering people who look different and start empowering um, alternative perspectives um, and creating space for alternative perspectives and people who might look or come from a different background. Um, And then I think there are people who also bring that out if even if you're an accountant like it can come out through your work as well so i think you can really fight against it from every single angle it's not one person's job but storytellers do have a special place of influence because they have the mic for the most part or the pen or whatever or the camera and so they have the ability to influence more people and to encourage more people to start Mm -hmm. actually like i think zootopia was like a great example of a story that started talking about institutionalized racism I loved it. I'm not sure if everyone else watched Utopia and got that, but I was feeling being like, "This great. is great!" No, I loved yes, it. you get this message into the minds of kids that like th- these kind of things aren't okay, and what what kind of institutionalized institutionalization looks like at a really basic level when it's expressed through a cartoon.
1: It's a great movie. I think it's one of the better movies that Disney has made. I love in Zootopia. a long time. Yeah, my son loves it. He loves the dance at the end to the. It's like Shakira or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's So awesome. good. Uh, gosh, well, thank you for uh, what you add to the world. Thanks for being willing to go on that poetry journey. We're excited to see what's next in your story. Um, I'd love to revisit this again in a year and do a do a uh, like check in with Danielle <laughs> the girl who Where are uh, you now? yeah the girl who he said ah, oh, maybe I'm supposed to be a full-time poet and took the leap that so many artists dream of having the courage to take and then going the I don't know it almost ruined it like I'm supposed to go back and take a gig again but still do poetry but yeah I'm doing that with confidence and not feeling like I'm making that decision because I failed because you were actually succeeding mm-hmm. um so yeah, I'm excited to see where this journey leads. It's, yeah, it's so easy to go into these conversations. At least I think from my perspective, I don't know why I have this perspective even, but I think I always go in that feeling like our oh, story's role is to empower artists to take that leap, to have mm-hmm. the courage to embrace it. And like, yeah, that's what you love. Go make a living doing it. And you're proof that sometimes that's not always the right decision. And so, yeah, it's a it's a fine balance because you don't you don't want to scare people that are on the edge when something deep inside of them is whispering jump like go like go take the risk jump, um, but you also want to responsibly tell your story and other people who share your story where you go maybe maybe you shouldn't feel that pressure maybe or maybe you should just for a year and then you know try and see what happens.
3: Yeah, I would say I would say jump without <coughs> expectation of what it looks like to fly. Mm, it's good
1: close us out with uh, close us out with your favorite poem
3: yeah this is definitely one of my favorite poems okay. this is free write January 16th I want to paper shred the times I wrote exposés on stolen stories of people close to me I want to tape back together strips of my own story from when I laid myself out on some cutting board to get applause for pain and and dysfunction instead of owning that I was loved, just then, exactly as I was, all gnarled and rough and in love with too many contradictory things, like the sum of every person's opinion of me and the truth. I want to own a rock with my name on it and the word patience as a reminder of what it takes to maintain belief in reconciliation. I want to remember that God's work is thousands of years of reconciliation, so I don't want to be 86 and such a temple slave at the house of work that I can't read the side effects of neglect on my family's eyes. I want to be 86 and still believe I can correct my course. I want to grow until the brush fire decides it's time to do a new thing and we got to teach the ground what we learned about the sky. I want the verses of my life to be the place where you scream, hallelujah. I want to be a line that hits forever. I want to stop writing if it ever serves to air pump my ego. I want to write like I am fluent in the language between the player and his trumpet. I want to write like I know that Jupiter's atmosphere is so dense, compressed hydrogen becomes a metal surface in a liquid sky, making it the most magnetic planet in the solar system. And I never want to be afraid of acting like Jupiter on days I feel I am made of something worth knowing. And I never want to be too proud or too jealous to love the Jupiter in someone else, to be the faintest star, still entirely worth knowing. I want to show up when I can and stop apologizing so much when I can't or when I do and I'm weird because it's exhausting trying to be something I'm not for you. And I need every ounce of discipline and good juju to be Bend this selfish into the surrender that love requires. I want to learn how to snake, how to shed this thick skin. If there's any chance it'll keep you out of this house, I try to sign over to God every morning. But the day, man, the day really knows how to rattle you from a balance beam, don't it? So I'm trying to do everything to strengthen my core. Teach me what you know, but uh, try it without words. I know enough about how to manipulate those. Show me how you turn your spinal cord into a stem that grows. Show me how your mouth becomes construction site where you know what needs to come down and how to build others back up. Show me how to Tetris my thoughts and open my lungs so I can run the steepest hill in this city because I know this life promises there are steeper to come. And we weren't born to collapse, but in case one of us does, I want to be ready to float you through my love or to finally be okay with letting you pick me back up. Until now, I had been too scared of rejection, but I know too many good men and good women to be anything but the mother of an orchard that knows how to let things and people go, how to be tilled by their root lift. I've got this friend that tills me every time he comes and goes. He taught me where Jupiter is. And I've got this friend who taught me I don't have to stash what I actually think. And I think for the first time in a really long time, I am learning how to be a me that I actually like. And I realize it's beautiful when people come alongside you in your sadness. But it's powerful, world-changing even, when they just want to journey with you because you are finally free.
0: Danielle is super awesome. I loved having her a story, but we've actually had a chance just to become closer friends with her. We've done some other events together. Um, I recently spoke at a leadership conference in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, and me. Her and Jason Jaggard, one of our other story speakers. You've heard of him on this podcast before. We had a chance to all hang out. Uh, ended up taking Danielle to the Mall of America. Have you ever been to the Mall of America? <laughs> no. It's like the nation's biggest mall. It's in Minneapolis. Oh, they call I've seen it, It's pictures. got like a theme park on the inside. Well, it's incredible. We're like, we're all speaking in Minneapolis. She hadn't been. I lived in Minneapolis for a year and a half. And so she's like, I haven't been. She didn't even know about it. So we took her. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I love Danielle. Uh, but talk to me about, I'm curious Out of all the things we talked about, we talked about Mm. quite a bit with her. What stood out most to you?
2: Yeah, what I connected with and resonated with the most, I think, was when I believe Kellen was asking her how she stays inspired and how she finds content to make poetry with. And I really liked her answer when she said that she stays inspired by living. She just goes out and she really lives. Mm -hmm. And she talked about the idea that the role of the poet is to provide insight to life, and so she just lives her life and pays really close attention to her surroundings, her feelings, her relationships. I think it's really beautiful, and I think that's something that every artist can do, is strive to provide insight to life.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how we're always, you know, people in the creative community are always looking for inspiration, Mm. and sometimes we don't feel very inspired, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you know, even you and I, we've asked people, like, where do you go for inspiration when it runs out? And I love her answer because at first it sounds like she's cheating because she's just saying, uh, I just go out and live my life. Um, yeah. But it's true. I think it's that and we all are have the opportunity to go out and do that, to go out and live our lives. Yeah. Maybe we just all don't pay attention as sure, much as we cause should. Sure, because we're
2: all living in a story that is unique and different than any other life that anyone else has lived before.
0: Do you feel like you can relate to that? Is there... Is there a way that you also find inspiration by just going out and living?
2: Yeah, so I started this book called The Artist's Way. I probably talked about it before on the show. Mm But I went through it last year, and it changed my life. It's written by Julia Cameron. We've
0: got to get her on the podcast at some uh, point. Yeah, that would be Because y- it's, it's not just you. You, as a co-host, talk about yeah. the book a lot. But like Allie Fallon, who we recently mm. had. Uh, well, so Allie Everyone is, is constantly talking yeah, about this Yeah, Allie book. is my
2: mentor. And so she really? gave the book to me years ago. Okay. And we started going through it together. And I finished it up by myself. And the book is a lot about learning how to fill up your own cup. And so that way that you have things to put down on the pages or put down in the film or put down on your Anything any type of artist can go through this book and learn a lot from it But it's about filling yourself up going on artist dates Journaling all that stuff to fill up your artist cup
0: Going on artist dates.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so artist dates are a required part of this 12-week course Okay, and once a week you take an hour two hours to do something that delights you whether that's going to a park. This week I went to the library and picked up a ton of books and took them out with me. Some weeks I do watercolor painting. It's making the decision to fight against resistance that you are too busy to play and um, making time to use your imagination and get back to your inner child.
0: I love that. Me too. I think what delights me is when you use the word delight. In a sentence. <laughs> Because even when you said that, I was like, I don't don't know that many of us use that word Mm. in normal conversation anymore. But delight is such a great word. It
2: is a great word. This morning as I was actually reading, I'm going through the book again um, with a group of women who are all artists. One is an oil painter. Another is a graphic designer. Another is a branding and interior designer. And um, we're on week two right now. And I just finished reading a chapter talking about... Your quality of life is based, is equivalent to your capacity for delight. And I love that. It's talking about the wow. idea if you can learn to sit in pain and find things to be grateful for and to um, be delighted with, your quality of life will be so much richer because you're choosing to see what's beautiful.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> So surprise and delight is something that we try to do at, at Story. Like in our creative mm. meetings, that's what we talk about. Like how can we surprise and delight attendees? But I don't think I use the word outside of the context of, you know, what we try to create in terms of experiences for our guests. But we need a lot more delighting. Delightful is another great word, too. Oh, that was just delightful. Could you imagine yeah. if we said that with a group <laughs> of friends? Just finishing how a was, dessert. How, how was, was dinner last night? That was delightful.
2: So would be like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs>
0: I had some Jenny's ice cream after lunch today with my kids, and that ice cream was delightful.
2: I'm sure I love Jenny's.
0: Oh man, so <laughs> awesome! Thank you, Danielle, for joining us. I love, I love to. Uh, you know, I just remembered the part of her talking about how you know she she left a full time job to go on the road full time, basically to write full time mm. and to perform poetry full time, and she's actually moving away from that and going back to work again. And how most people, I think. Um, you know, there's this, this is like, yeah, I quit my job and I'm going to be an Mm, artist. Yeah. And she's actually going back, but she doesn't feel like that's a step back. She feels like it's a step forward to go back. She doesn't feel like she failed. I love that part of the conversation. I love that too. Yeah, Yeah. So keep in touch with Danielle. Um, her website, which is great, she has a cool little Etsy shop. She takes She's taken a lot of her poetry. She's an incredible artist, and she puts it in the form of art. Calligraphy, I think, is like the technical type of art that she does. But her, her website is MissDanielleBennett.com. She spells Danielle Bennett, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E, and then her last name is B-E-N-N-E-T-T. So MissDanielleBennett.com. And then on Twitter and Instagram, she is Miss D. Bennett. So just miss deep in it. But yeah, give her a shout out. Let her know that you listened to her interview on the story podcast and let her know what she got out of it. Sammy, thanks for coming back into the studio. Thanks She's so much for the show this week. This yeah, is awesome. This is always fun. Always good to see you, but you did not bring pup tart.
2: <laughs> next time. <laughs> next time.
0: We'll talk to you guys next week.